Hey, Yarm, tell tell us all why your tweets are blowing up. Uh, I um, I did what what all like at least German plant scientists do. Um, I pick a favorite anti-GMO activist uh, or group, and then I just harass them with my opinions. Mm-hmm. I think um, the word troll is more appropriate. Yeah, probably. Yeah, it's trolling. Um, trolling them and trying to like get them out of their their uh, defensive position or like or trying to get them react at all to be honest like (laughs) so many people i see they're just like constantly attacking i don't know the german green party or uh, some anti-gmo activist and the other side is always completely silent like they don't react at all and still they're like every day there's a tweet of like ha 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 look at this like you're stupid and i'm smart um i want to mention just like on the record that from the very start of this blog podcasting thingy, Yoram was very insistent that we not do anything that's too clickbaity, that we don't try and, you know, make these moves that just say, look at us, look at us and call for attention. And it has consistently been Yoram who has been like, hey, hey, look, there's a chance to put off Greenpeace. Let's do that today. It's called content strategy. <laughs> uh-huh. Look it up. I think play the theme music. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Plants and Pipettes, where we talk plant science. My name is Tegan. And my name is Yoram. And I've now exhausted my, my telephone voice, so I'm going to go back to the normal screech that you hear. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's better because that's a little bit loud on the waveform. I think you can turn yourself up a little bit um, on your end. Nah, but then I hear myself too much and it's upsetting. Um, How's that? Yeah, that's... You got some good gain there? Yeah, that's better. Good. Um... Yeah. welcome Wait, edit mark welcome yeah no don't edit that i mean okay then yeah. real, real life happened yaram people it's, need to, to feel and know <laughs> technical difficulties it's completely natural to have to adjust your gain like why are we gain shaming um yeah <laughs> also i mean i would like everybody to know that yaram just told me about five minutes ago that he needs alcohol to just to talk with me so i'm now like in a mildly foul mood so if you pick up any <laughs> More than the normal amount of anger towards Yoram. Um, no, it's this, Yoram's fault. I don't know. I, Team Tegan. I don't know how many second languages you speak, but uh, whenever I speak one of my second languages, I feel that I'm much <laughs> <Wow>. more... <laughs> <laughs> Way to be bougie right from the stuff. <laughs> no, I, I have this feeling that I... I think it's pure perception, but that I, when I have like a little bit of a bus going... I speak English more fluently than I would if I'm like completely sober. Mm. Um, so it might be that some of our podcast episodes in the past were recorded under influence, um, which is not something that I recommend. Just saying it's what I have. Oh, might have I've done. actually seen a specific study about this relating to German and Dutch, which my Dutch friend told me about. So keep that in mind that my Dutch friend told me about this experiment, because basically the finding is that Germans can more fluently speak Dutch when they're slightly drunk. But <laughs> I've also heard the opinion that Dutch sounds a little bit like drunk German. So... <laughs> Take what you will from that. And again, remember, my Dutch friend told me about this experiment <laughs> and this belief. Um, yeah, it would be... I, I, I think there's something to it. And um, 
Yeah, so no, there's definitely like a, a limitation where if you overthink things, just nothing's going to come out. And yeah. at the end of the day, the point of conversation is to converse, not to completely beautifully say everything in in wonderful ways. <laughs> yeah. So how how have you been? Oh, I'm okay. I don't know. What have, I, again? We're still in lockdown. I think that the big thing for my last week is that I'm trying to do. I'm trying to write an editorial at work, which is a pretty big, new, exciting thing for me. Um. And it's, I, I write a lot, obviously. I write for the blog a couple of times a week on average. Um, but I always write that in a very Tegany tone and quite <laughs> quite casually. <laughs> and with, with quite a strong disregard for what the implications of my writing would be. And also, it's, it's very scientific. I usually am reading a paper and just writing thoughts. I think, like, on our blog, the opinion pieces tend to be you, Yoram, and I tend to be the more um, sciencey pieces. Yeah, yeah. You usually and try to, as also in the edits that you do on my texts, they are much more about like, you can't say this that strongly, like tone this down, be more sort of um, not, not neutral, but like see more of both sides of the argument. I'm just like, no, I think they're stupid and everybody should know about it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, half of my edits are just like, this is supposed to be a science blog, Yaron. Please keep it scientific. Please don't just talk bull. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so now like I'm writing an editorial, which means I have to kind of put a whole lot of different ideas together, but also have it in a more discussion-y tone. And then also it's not my tone it's kind of the tone of um the journal which is, is a new thing and this is oh my it always takes a thousand times longer than you think it will and it's quite yeah quite a thing it's consuming my mind right now yeah i imagine that's um like following the style guides that are not your personal style is something like it's something that you have to learn and be quick about like learn to be quick about it um i'm also not very good at it so far like but it's one of those things that i can i already feel like it's it's really good it's really I, i i'm not enjoying the process but i'm enjoying it in hindsight somehow like I, i can feel that it's it's exercising a different part of me that's important and it's it's something new it's a different start and yeah that's that's great yeah yeah <sighs> yeah I, i also haven't been doing um a lot sciencey lately i've just like i had a weekend with a, a sick child and a sick spouse and now um I'm trying to build a Now bed. you're sick. No, I'm actually not sick. Uh, I don't know how I got the immunity, but I am immune to this and possibly to everything. Um, <laughs> based on the evidence um, <laughs> of my last weekend, I might be immune Let's to everything. Let's maybe not test that right now. <laughs> no. no um, but uh, yeah, I'm. So I've just been like doing house stuff, uh, actually to the point that I started my rep uh, preparation for this episode very, very late. Um, because I was just busy with wow. like other things. Um, I don't. I don't think that we should sort of set that tone from the start of our episode. By the way, none of us have prepared for this episode. I didn't say uh, none of strap yourself in. I, I'm assuming you're very well prepared, um, and I'm mm. also like I said, I started late. I didn't say that I did a bad job in preparing. Um, he, he, mm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> start late be great. maybe it was a humble brag where you're like i started really late but actually i've got all the facts and all the exciting things yeah uh, so you've been painting your house you've been physically doing manual labor and building like woodworking building a bed yeah um many many great things are happening yeah i'm, I'm woodworking fine finally for i haven't done that in a, in a long time i bought new tools obviously as you do when you start a new project um, but now i have tools that enable me to make many different projects it's just like a um 
what's it called like this, this saw that's on a hinge that you can like push down so you get oh, yeah. like angular cuts i think I it's have no idea but angular saw whatever and um angle grinder no, that's that's a different that's thing, a different surely. thing and one thing um, that spins very fast where you can trim off edges and make like pretty edges on recently cut board. And with that one I know because my grandfather trimmed off the edge of his finger using that one. Yeah, what's it called then? It's <laughs> a bandsaw. Is it a bandsaw? No, no, it's not a bandsaw. But anyway, um, a router. I think it's called a router. Um, That's for internet, surely. Uh, yeah, and if you spin it very, very fast, you can trim off your fingers with it. <laughs> Um, oh, gosh. So, yeah, I, I got these two things. And so I spent some time in my like little workshop um, corner in the basement. It's really just like it's the tiniest of tiny spaces. Um, but it's it's a lot of fun to make something physical. Um, and hopefully, uh, like I'm only I cut all the pieces. I'm only putting it together in the next couple of days. So hopefully it will work out. Otherwise, I just like spend a lot of time cutting and having fun there, but doing absolutely nothing that works. Yeah, I think that's also a really good thing to do during quarantine times if you have the means. And it doesn't have to be woodworking, obviously, because that's quite an involved hobby, I would say. But something with your hands, it can be, you know, sewing, embroidery, whittling. I mean, I guess I would encourage something not with sharp knives. But I think building something with your hands during this time is like immensely satisfying and is also exercising a part of your brain that's, that's different from the normal kind of sit, computer, work, sleep. TV yeah. thing that we're doing most of the time. So, and something that we talked about many times is the the fact of creating something something physical, something tangible, immediately without the long time in between the thing that you you are making. Like in science, especially, like this experiment that you're doing and the results that you're getting, they're often uh, just temporarily disconnected and therefore sort of frustrating. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, woodworking is sort of the opposite. You you immediately see what you're doing and you get to where you want to go very fast. I mean, it doesn't it's give you... It's instant gratification, but without that dirty feeling because you've just bought something on Amazon and therefore supported Jeff Bezos's lifestyle. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I bought one thing on Amazon because somebody gave me an Amazon voucher. Um, oh no, I was just generally talking about, you know... Yeah, in, in general. You know, they always say our generation is the instant gratification generation because we can, you know, buy something and have it delivered to our house the next day etc yeah. etc but shall we talk a little bit about your favorite plant Tegan? sure why not <laughs> <laughs> my favorite plant uh, so my favorite plant today is called horse hill or elf dock or ella campana um the scientific name is Inula helenium, and if you look at it, it's an Asteraceae, which basically means it belongs to the sunflower or daisy family, and it basically looks like one of those. So it kind of looks like a dandelion flower, but something more towards a daisy, you know, yellow center, yellow radiating leaves, quite a basic type of plant, I would say. Um, it's also found in Eurasia and across China, so and also in North America, so a fairly common and and wildly found plant. Why I thought it was interesting as a plant is that it has this name um, which has kind of mythical links and it has a lot of kind of folky stories associated with it. So the plant species name is Helenium and this comes from Helen of Troy. 
mm-hmm. who, if you probably remember in the Greek mythology, was the most beautiful woman in the world. She was kidnapped by, I think, the king of Troy, and that started the Greek Trojan Wars, um, which ended with the the Trojan ho- horse from Odysseus going into the, the city, yeah? Um, so the... This plant, Elecampane, I'm not sure how to say that. I mean, there's the the pronunciation description on Wikipedia, but I have no Ella idea campaign? how to read that. Yeah, Com- I don't know if it's Elecampane or Elecampane. Let's go with Elfwort. So this thing called hey. Elfwort is supposed to have um, come from her tears when she was presumably crying about being homesick once she was nicked and taken to Troy. Um, on top of that, as I said, it's called Elfwort as well. So it has this association with elves and fairies from um, Celtic myths and some also kind of more, I don't know if I want to say sciencey, but like some ancient science <laughs> roots. So um, it was used to manufacture absinthe, but it also was believed to be a stimulant. I mean, probably it had some stimulating properties, but this was then linked to curing various things like hydrophobia so fear of water basically you get the root of the plant you bruise it so i'm assuming you bash it a bit with a rock and then you put milk with it or is it a strong decoction of milk so maybe you just milk the root or maybe you add milk to it I'm, Mm -hmm. i'm not an ancient druid the story that I like is that it's been used since Roman times and there's a, a cookbook from the first century AD which mentions that you can use this plant to tell whether your honey is spoilt or not. And <laughs> how, basically... How you does put honey the pl- spoil? I thought it's one of these things that doesn't spoil. I thought they, they dug up like Egyptian ancient honey and was still good to eat. Yeah, I've also heard that they found stuff in the tombs, in the um, pyramids basically... Yeah. Um, from from thousands and thousands. I mean, when when it's pyramid times, I'm not sure. Um, also, the <laughs> the way you see if it's spoiled is you immerse the plant in honey, which to me, arguably, if your honey wasn't spoiled before, you've now put a plant in it, so it might <laughs> not be super clean. Um, and then you light the plant, and if the plant burns brightly, the honey is considered fine. So I'm guessing you're drying the plant first, either that or you're trying to like light a wet plant that's immersed in honey um yeah which doesn't seem strange so again linked to water also linked to honey the reason i found this quite interesting is because i actually came across this across this plant originally not from the mythology but from something related to honey as well so one of the things about the plant is that it has a storage um polymer so basically a kind of starch like compound made of lots of sugars joined together a storage molecule um that's called inulin and inulin is basically a yeah, this natural storage carbohydrate. It's found in lots of species of plants. It's also in wheat, onion, bananas, garlic, chicory, asparagus. It, it, it's just it's just a storage thing. Um, it's soluble in water, but it's also kind of gloopy. I mean, <laughs> it can change the osmotic potential of of the water. And um, it was discovered originally in this inula helenium that I'm talking about. So mm. the elfwort. That's the the original. Um, extraction came from a German scientist basically boiling the root of inula and finding a new a new chemical 
I know inulin from making ice cream. So when you um, start going into um, yeah, I, sort of not professional ice cream making, but if you take the recipes from sort of commercial ice creams, um, they contain inulin because it has some special qualities. And I think you know something more about this. Yeah, so that's basically exactly it. Inulin is a heterogeneous collection of fructose polymers. So it's basically this branch structure of sugar, which kind of gives its ability, which I think would be helpful in the the ice cream, right? It gives it some sweetness, yes, but it's giving this structure which allows things to form a gel or a creamy substance instead of sort of freezing into crystals. Or it also gives us, on the other hand, like this gel-like thing that makes it um, viscous. So the the reason I found about inulin um, was actually I was in a weird organic shop and I was looking at vegan honey. So there's a brand called Honey, H-O-N-E-A, which is a vegan honey. And I was curious about how people make vegan honey because basically you, you, you add sugar, you add some apple and you add some blossom flavoring. But I was wondering how to imitate the honey texture. And as it turns out, the trick is you add inulin. Hmm. So this was the, the origins of my discovery. It just seemed like a kind of cool journey to this little plant yeah uh, the processed food market is really getting a ma major boost now with these ve vegan or vegetarian alternatives because suddenly you want to mimic these sort of meat-like structures or in this case like honey-like structures from um, um and to do that you need to be like a food technician you have to figure mm -hmm. out like which things are safe to eat but also have certain physical properties that mimic something that we get from animals um so yeah i'm i'm always very interested in that it's it's like close to the thing that i originally studied and that's why um sort of i studied biotechnology but um it was sort of a shared course with in most classes with food technology so we sort of had like always a side glance into this area where people like mix different sort of food safe chemicals together to yeah make a very creamy ice cream to make mm -hmm. um and nowadays it's just like you make a fake sausage or you make a honey that's not made uh, by bees but um mixed together um sort of yeah artificially. also um foams and emulsions so because it has this kind of branchy structure it can stabilize things and that's part of where you get this creaminess or this viscosity but you can also use it to to then stabilize something that you've kind of whipped or beaten up so Yeah, it's it's quite a cool and wacky mm -hmm. subsection of, of science and of, of foods as well. This, yeah. Yeah, molecular cool. gastronomy kind of thing. So, so that's inulin and the plant that it was originally um, found in, which is called inula helenium. So this week, it's my turn to talk about a non-Ymail researcher from the world of plant science. And uh, I recently learned about uh, Segenet Kelemu, uh, who is an Ethiopian plant pathologist. Uh, I found a short video portrait about her um, from Bill Gates, actually, um, who presented her, her work. Um, and it's I found it quite interesting. There are a couple of things in her biography that I found um That's, that, that stood out to me. So she grew up very poor in Ethiopia um, as a, um, a child 
of a farming fa a farmer's family and uh, she was always very bright and very smart was doing very well in school and so her mother very quickly um, put her on duty to go to the market and sell off the produce because um, she thought like she was also like very forthcoming and very st um, strong willed or had strong opinions and therefore she thought she's perfect to negotiate good prices at the market mm -hmm. um, and that's where she sort of got by necessity but also through interest her understanding of the importance of agriculture and therefore she wanted to work on that and improve that um, she was very um, she was very good in school and luckily she had teachers who supported her um, but she was also considered very rebellious and she's saying that herself that she was very rebellious and therefore she she wasn't married off very early, which is usually what happens to young girls um, in in that context, that they arrange a marriage and then they become housewives. Uh, but she was too rebellious. Is this, she had is too this much a culturally predominant thing, like that people get married quite young? I think in, in the area that she grew up in, in Ethiopia, that's a culturally sort of uh, conventional um, approach to yeah, very early on arrange a marriage and then... Um, the, the girls are married off and she was too rebellious always she didn't accept that and so nobody wanted to marry her or her parents didn't try to arrange a marriage it's that, that she didn't really go into the details details there but i but like this that, is the fact that, that she mentions in her own yeah she mentioned her, it herself yeah, she's like i was unmarriable by yeah. by all and, standards okay cool. and so she continued her education and she was actually the first woman from her region who managed to get a college degree and um, then she started to do her research abroad um, and quite successfully. She, so as a plant pathologist, I think she mostly dealt with um, insect pests and their impact on agriculture and how to manage those. Um, and during her research abroad from Ethiopia, she was awarded a, a prize from the Chinese Academy of Science for contributing to a better China. And she said that herself in, in the video that this was sort of a turning point for her because mm -hmm. she... She was doing this um, important work, this important contribution to the betterment of agriculture, but not in her home country, where she knows where the agriculture still needs quite a lot of um, development and support because it's it's um, subsidizing or not subsidizing. It's it's the main way of living for many people in in her country, and so she returned home after twenty five years abroad and continued to work um, in Ethiopia. Uh, and since 2013, she's uh, the director general of the International Center of Insect Physiology and Ecology, which is Africa's only institute uh, dedicated to research on insects and other arthropods, which she's oh, leading wow. in um, in Ethiopia. And she was awarded many different prizes. Um, she got a L'Oréal UNESCO Award for Women in Science in 2014. She was named one of the 100 most influential African women by Forbes Africa and elected as a fellow of the World Academy of Sciences in 2015. Um, so, uh, not only great scientific achievements, but also um, uh, highly awarded. And she continues to, um, yeah, to to work and educate people on the importance of agriculture. And she's still very much dedicated to this idea of, um, yeah, you doing research and using that to create um, a better agriculture system that can support more people more easily. Um, especially in regard to um, dealing with pests and so on. And yeah, so that's um, Segenet Kilemu. 
um, Ethiopian plant pathologist. We linked a short video portrait and also the Wikipedia article on her that has uh, many more details um, in the show notes. I, I found it quite, I found it actually quite in inspiring the way she, she talked and the way um, she her, her approach to science, like this, this turning back to your home country and using your skills mm -hmm. to improve um, yeah, this, the, the society and the, the community that you come from. I mean, I'm looking across her, her Google Scholar account and she has quite a focus on these different um, aspects of edible insects. So insects and overlooked food source is something from 2015, but then also things about um, climate, uh, climate um, tolerant, climate smart is the word I want, climate smart grasses and um, yeah, different pests. It's, it's quite cool. I mean, obviously she's very high up now, so she's involved in lots of different projects, but... Wow, interesting. Let's talk, talk, talk about bias, bias, bias. Um, so the one, the thing I wanted to talk today about today, I also can't say that, is I'm not sure if it's really a bias. It's kind of a study of inattentional blindness. Do you have any idea what this might be, Yoram? I only know the concept of plant but plant blindness, which I come across from time to time. Um, no, this okay. is a little bit different from that. Maybe you've heard of the invisible gorilla test. Oh, uh, yeah, I've, I've heard about that. Can you describe basically the idea of that or is it a little bit too vague? No, no, I, it's, it's you show participants of your study a video and you tell them in the video, there's a couple of people who will throw a ball between them and yep. you should count how many times they throw the ball. Mm -hmm. And then they do that and like you see a couple of people, I think like four people and they pass the ball back and forth and you count them every time the ball passes. And um, while that happens, a guy in a gorilla suit walks just amongst them and pretty obviously. Mm -hmm. But yeah. when you ask the participants after they counted the, the, the ball, um, like, did you notice anything unusual? They say, no, I like they pass the ball back and forth that's it um because they put their attention on the passing of the ball and therefore completely tuned out any other disturbance they focused just on the ball yeah, yeah so the the number i have here is that in most groups 50 percent of the subjects did not report seeing the gorilla and this is not a small gorilla it's not a trick gorilla it's not camouflaged it just literally is somebody in a gorilla suit that walks in and then walks off again and you can check these videos out on youtube we'll probably link to something but it's, it's not hard to see the gorilla if you're looking for the gorilla but the idea is that people are so focused on their task that they are ignoring the gorilla and on one hand this is a really cool thing about human brain activity because it means that we can have immense focus on a certain thing which is great for all of you trying to work at home in noisy environments right now i mean it's also why we can read books in you know a crowded subway or whatever a range of ideas it allows us to focus on one thing when there are a ton of other distracting stimuli but it might also be problematic because we've failed to see a freaking gorilla, which yeah. <laughs> seems like a pretty big amount of blindness. And the reason I wanted to bring this up was because I saw a recent study which was published in Genome Biology um, this year, so 3rd of September. It's by Itai Yanai and Martin Lercher, and the title is A Hypothesis is a Liability. Um, and it's basically linked to the gorilla experiment or it's inspired by the gorilla experiment i would say uh, what they did is they used a fairly small sample size but a group of students 
and they gave these students a data set. The data set had the body mass index of like 1700 different people and linked to that um, body mass index was also the number of steps that each of those people took on particular days and the data was divided into females and, and males. And the students were placed into two different groups. And on one group, the students were asked to look for certain hypotheses. And in the other group, they were basically just hypothesis free. They were simply asked, what do you conclude from the data set? And um, yeah, the first, the first group had three specific hypotheses. So it's that there is a statistically significant difference in the average number of steps taken by men and women that there is a negative correlation between the number of steps and the BMI for women, and that this correlation is positive for men. So those hypotheses are not really that important. It's just to, to give you an idea of how they're not super complex hypotheses. They're just looking for basic patterns between this fairly simple data set. It only has like two variables, really. But when you plot this um, data, you can very clearly see a gorilla. So I'm just going to link this now to Yoram <laughs> and see if he can see the gorilla in the data set. Right. So scroll down to figure one. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> it is possible that if you plot the two genders separately, you won't see the gorilla because it's kind of a join the dots where, you know, the male points and the female points separately, they individually won't really make a gorilla. Yeah, just Although to, still just to, to indicate, so, um, the thing that you see is that they plot on the x-axis the steps and on the y-axis the body mass index of um, male and female together. And then all of the data points together, they draw out a gorilla, um, which obviously you only see when you plot the data um, in this way and you don't see it if you just look at the table of your data. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So <laughs> again, it is quite a small data set. So for the hypothesis focus group, 14 people did not see a gorilla while five or five groups, sorry, not people, saw the gorilla. Whereas the ones without the hypothesis who weren't searching for this other thing, it was five and nine. So the conclusions is that students without a specific hypothesis were almost five times more likely to discover the gorilla. Um, so there's kind of a discussion. There's two things here. The first is really basic. Visualize your freaking data, people. Um, that's the first lesson <laughs> is that it's nice to have things in Excel and to do all the t-tests and the correlations and, and all of that. But sometimes data visualization can be really helpful as well. Um, and <laughs> yes, do you agree? No, yeah, yeah. You just said a trigger word for me. Um, but uh, Excel. Yeah, I said the Excel word. Yeah, because the plot in the in the paper is done in R. You can tell that from the way it looks. It's true. Um, but I said it's nice to have everything done in Excel. But but I, I didn't say you should no, plot no, it in I, Excel. I'm just Did I'm just I? joking. Um, I'm, I'm I'm just joking. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's very important not to only look at the at, at your tables. L try to like plot them, and maybe in in multiple ways to to get a feeling for your for your data set it's i mean it gets complicated when you have like very large data sets but even then you can often break it down into like concepts mm -hmm. and then follow them um like when i i did some protein biochemistry and i had the the abundances of literally like hundreds or thousands of proteins um and instead of like plotting them all together i found like a way of plotting them individually but i plotted them because that told me much more about the effects that i could observe than if i would have just looked at the numbers and tried to like 
build ratios between the numbers and, and things like that. Yeah, and so that's that's kind of the point that I mean in in this experiment in this setup, the students could answer their hypotheses without plotting the data. They didn't need to. It wasn't part of the task. And in fact, it, yeah, it was just not necessary. They could still come to the correct conclusions about those hypotheses without visualizing the data. But they did miss something quite large by not visualizing the data. So I think this is kind of the, the take home here is like, sort of sit on your data, put it in your mouth, chew it about, like, you know, play around with it. Um, and it's also a discussion about whether we should have hypothesis versus not hypothesis driven mm -hmm. questions because there are some really obvious benefits of having hypothesis driven science. It asks, it allows you to ask specific questions and it, especially if you have limited resources, it allows you to really isolate which experiments you need to do in order to support one hypothesis or reject it. And that's, that's a really important part of doing science. Um, but it's also important to not just be blinded by this hypothesis. And of course, with a hypothesis, there often comes a bias where scientists inadvertently seek to prove their hypothesis as opposed to um, questioning the data. But anyway, I thought this was a really cool, cool demonstration of yeah. the importance of, of, you know, looking at things and... and thinking a bit laterally as well. I can encourage you all to go and read this. It's actually an editorial, so I think a lot of it is the discussion. Um, it has titles like Not All Who Wander Are Lost and Fishing Expedition as part of the, the subheadings. Keep exploring and carrying on. So we'll put a link to that. Um, go and check it out when you have yep. the time and at least go and see if you could see the gorilla because I'm pretty sure you can. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, that's that's a that's a beautiful thing. I will I will bookmark that, and I would definitely use that again in the future when talking to students about um, like the power of visualization and like looking in a sort of graphical way at your research, be it by drawing out sort of diagrams, by looking at your data visualizations, and so on. Like these, at least for some people, and I think for most people, a, a visual approach is often more tangible than. Um, just a, a, a purely numerical i mean there's all these um studies as well that show like that we have like our brains only work in a small sort of um area of numbers where we can very easily figure out like how much larger something is in relation to something else but when you go into like very large numbers or into like um like with yeah, lots of our brains just don't deal with complex data at all, do they? Yeah. We're just not, and and part of that is deliberate and evolutionary. We need to simplify things in order to survive. We need to, you know, yeah. but there's there are certain things that we're we're not good at, um, and yeah, part of that is is missing things, but part of that is also adding patterns where there are not patterns. Our brain wants to find patterns often, and that's a whole different. So that's actually where I started with this. There's a different type of bias which is linked to you know finding faces in clouds or the man in the moon, and it's, it's that we find patterns when there aren't patterns. Mm -hmm. And then I was thinking, oh, what about like missing patterns that are there as well? So yeah, yeah. the human brain is amazing, but also terrible. <laughs> this is where the fun begins. This is where the fun oh i can see that yarn really wants to say something first <laughs> off we go yarn so the first fact that i brought is something that you might have seen on the blog already mm -hmm. um it's a story about greenpeace genome editing and detection of genome editing 
And a little bit of ranting from your arm. And a little bit of ranting from me. Um, I mean, it's not really an, an opinion piece, but it definitely clouded by my opinion on on CRISPR. Uh, let's not say clouded, but it's influenced by your opinion yeah. and hopefully backed up by scientific fact. But first, like, so what is this whole thing about? Um, I mean, genome editing, you might know this under the buzzword of CRISPR. Um, CRISPR is not the only tool that's available for genome editing, but it's the one that got famous recently. I mean, you even saw movies with The Rock where animals were modified with CRISPR and then they turned into monsters. So it's it's a thing that's hit is this the mainstream a movie? Though. Yeah, Why I, haven't I, we watched this movie together? I think we should watch this movie and, and, and mock it. I don't know where. I, I actually watched it, but I don't know when. It's something that you would watch on an airplane, but I haven't flown intercontinental in a while. So mm. I must have like missed the feeling of flying, sitting in a plane and watching terrible movies and watch it actually at home. But anyway, CRISPR is a tool of genome editing and genome editing um, is the modification of sequences, uh, of DNA sequences, in a very precise way and by doing very small edits. Um, mm -hmm. So instead of uh, throwing a whole gene in there that does something that would be a transgenic approach, you just change a couple of letters and that can be enough to actually induce um, a lot of bigger changes. And I think the the appropriate analogy here is that if the the DNA, the complete sequence of DNA, the genome of an organism is a book, then here you're just changing two or three letters in one word of that huge book. So it's quite a small change. And also, if you don't know where that change is, it's quite hard to find that change, which is part of the problem which Greenpeace has, right? It's part of the problem, um, but uh, very often it's when crops are released, it's sort of also published um, what the underlying mutation is if it is known mm -hmm. sometimes you don't know sometimes you just figure out the crop that you made is better um, with dealing uh, with a lot of water um, but you couldn't figure out yet what the genetic reason for that is but not in this case so why does greenpeace even care about um, whether or not something has been made with uh, genome editing um, or by con or by conventional breeding in contrast um, this is down to uh, a court decision two years ago where the European Court of Justice ruled that genome editing must not be used on any crops that are grown or sold within the European Union, which um, technically they said they have to be regulated like genome uh, genetically modified organisms, but that uh, means that's a de facto ban. You can't... Um, buy products or make products in the European Union if your input material, if your crops are um, modified with genome editing. And the point here is that there's it's a lot, lot more relaxed in other countries. So in the US, it's really quite common to have different types of genetically modified organisms using like now the editing, but also the older techniques. Um, and also, you know, there's different legislation in Australia, other countries. So there's this risk that these CRISPR edited crops could make their way into the EU. Yeah. And so you want to be able, if you want to ban something, you have to be able to find it and to tell <laughs> it apart from the legal thing. Um, and that's not very easy in the case of genome editing because um, the end result of genome editing is, as we said, just a tiny change of a couple of letters within the entire millions of base pairs in the DNA. And um, even if you know where to look, just the presence of this change in your DNA doesn't tell you anything about the way it came there, uh, it came to be. 
because even in traditional breeding you rely on small mutations of your genetic code and then um yeah you if you compare your old line and your new line you will find gen differences in the genetic code um and that's the big problem with genome editing um in terms of detection and now greenpeace has released a, um, a protocol that gives instructions on how to find a very specific mutation in canola in rapeseed and um, with that they promise that this will be this will help to identify this edited canola and stop it uh, from being imported into european union or being used in uh, in, in the european union the problem with that is that um, it's a test that just looks for the presence of a certain mutation and the presence or absence of this mutation doesn't tell us anything about the way the mutation got there. Um, mm -hmm. And in the case, uh, in this specific case, even um, the mutation was probably not uh, made through the process of genome editing, but through a sort of a random event happening during the cult culture of these canola lines when they were developing them um yeah and so when greenpeace published that with a big pr campaign under the hashtag of nowhere to hide uh researchers especially um german plant researchers um sort of re um what's the word like responded very quickly and very strongly the german botanical society put up a statement um about the fact that the test proposed by Greenpeace doesn't actually detect the genome editing. It detects a mutation that can uh -huh. be the result of genome editing, but can also be the result of other events. So basically, I mean, the problem here is that it's an oversell. So what they're what it, it sounds like is that you can now detect CRISPR-Cas9. You can see where CRISPR-Cas9 has been. The presence of CRISPR-Cas9 has left a trail, um, the scene of the crime, something like that. But actually, that's not the case. You can see a mutation, but it's not at all clear who done it in this case. So, yeah, that's that's a bit of an oversell. So far, there's not there's not a way to, to test if CRISPR-Cas9 was there yeah. or CRISPR non-Cas9. And yeah, that's that's why many researchers have their concerns about the, the method or the way the method is framed. Um, nobody mm -hmm. nobody says that it's actually wrong what they got as results. Like they they did a proper peer reviewed study about the detection of this mutation, but then the framing that the detection of the mutation is also the detection of genome editing is what's criticized. Um, and I summarized this in a post on uh, our website, plantsandpipettes.com. You can find that there. Um, and we'll link that in the show notes um, where yeah. I summarize a couple of points of view on, on the story and a little bit more context. So go and check that out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, my fact I had was something that actually follows up from a blog post we had a couple of weeks back. So we talked about this certain type of blueberry mm -hmm. that is a very, very vivid blue color. And the cool thing about the berry is that it doesn't use pigments. So what we normally think of as, as being colors that we use with our paints, it's not using pigments to make this blue color. It's using physics so it's it's got special structures in this case it was like fatty globules which specifically the reflect light in a way that makes the berry look really really much more blue than it should be if it did not have the structures 
And I found a similar kind of study. It's a bit older, so it's from 2019 from Vanderkoy and Stavenga in the Journal of Comparative Physiology A. And it's basically describing that this is a similar thing that's done in poppies. So if you mm. think of the average poppy flower, they also have very bright colors. They're very vividly red or orange. But if you think about the actual structure of these petals, they're not particularly thick. Mm -hmm. So the question arises, how do they manage to get such bright pigments if they don't have actually density of cells to, to make all of this pigment? And one study I saw said that they had maybe only three or four layers, I think, of cells. Yes. Yes. So the petals of papaver, which is the common poppy, has only three cell layers. So it's basically got an upper and a lower epidermal layer, so these um, skin layers, and then <laughs> one layer of cells between them. Mm -hmm. um, and the one layer of cells doesn't even have any pigments in it. So it's only got the two epidermal layers, which are actually have pigments, and they're densely packed with pigments. But what they also use is these kind of serpentine cell walls and air cavities is the de description, which gives again this physical effect where it strongly scatters light and thus basically amplifies the optical signals that you see from mm -hmm. these these flowers so these flowers are amazing like the berry they're using not just pigments but also physical properties to trick our eyes into seeing them as being the brightest and most beautiful things in the field and i just think that's really cool yeah it, it really is um just trying to to wrap my head around it how how that works because if you have such a thin layer it's like if you have these these crafting paper is it crepe paper crepe paper yeah in English? crepe paper crepe paper or tissue paper would be the very thin one yeah the tissue paper and even if that's colored if you hold it against the light it's sort of translucent because there's not much that can actually block the light and and make it opaque so yeah it's um so if we would sort of have these micro grooves, these, these serpentines in there, if we could sort of recreate that in a paper structure, we could also make it more opaque and mimic the poppies. Is, is that right? Do I get like the, the right idea from this? I mean, not that we really have the, the necessity for it, but just to, to understand what's going on. I, I'm I'm not sure if we would have theoretically yes. So there's there's this physical element that is helping us see the intensity. I mean, they do mention that those two epidermal cells have just insanely high concentration of of the pigment as well. So it it, it is a lot of pigment. Um, but yeah, also these air gaps which cause the reflection and light scattering, which makes mm -hmm. it bright. Yeah, I mean, there are definitely discussions about whether we would be able to paint or work with pigments in this physical way in the future in, in a better way to, to get something like this but i'm i haven't seen any evidence of people actually yeah doing it but yeah yeah cool I, I don't know i mean 3d printing would be the kind of setup you're thinking of to make this into like, i don't know how you would or maybe you you when you make <laughs> the paper you make it on a on a sort of a, a template with these microstructures or nanostructures or um, you etch it in there with lasers or uh, something else, like some crazy material science stuff that I don't really mm. understand how, how they do it. I'm going to say, currently your idea sounds a little bit overly complicated for tissue paper, which is <laughs> getting destroyed within about five seconds, but <laughs> yeah. we but can put it before some, the shark tank or whatever. Some other areas something. where we need thin but very um, strongly colored or very opaque materials that are not translucent. 
Oh, I actually have something that kind of segues from that. So can I yeah, go for it? Can I mention the thing next? So it's something that I saw in the nature briefing again. Um, and it's basically linked to printing and also linked to very, very thin things. I'm not sure if you saw this, but material scientists have now printed solar cells. Mm -hmm. um, so they've, they've used an inkjet, basically, an inkjet printer, and they've made these exceedingly thin solar cells, which are so light and flexible, they can rest on the surface of a soap bubble, which <laughs> is just mind-blowing and i was actually trying to find this story so i we can put the link it's um to a nature um article but i found a previous discussion from 2016 and it turns out that these guys are not the first people to show that they can balance a solar cell on a bubble back in 2016 there was also some mit scientists who created a very light very thin solar cells so apparently floating things on a bubble like putting it on the bubble and showing that it, it doesn't pop the bubble is the gold standard test for solar cells these days and we just <laughs> yeah, don't know about it because it sounds like a standard method it's like you you <laughs> present your work in front of a science audience and they all suggest experiments what to do and then somebody's like do the soap bubble experiment um, and then you're like oh it's one of the harder ones like I don't know how to get it work and then you spend like six months to get like the soap bubble right that you can place your solar cell on it um, the previous work was uh, Vladimir Bulovic um, Joel Jean and Annie Wang um, who pr produced this, this first soap bubble very lightweight um, solar cell it was 2.3 microns thick so this is about 150th the thickness of a human hair I don't know um, how thick a human hair is. Like, I know I have... But you know it's not that thick, right? Yeah. Much thinner than saran wrap is also included in the article, if you're interested in that. Um, but my understanding is theirs was still made f not from printing. So I think the, the new finding is that it's now printable, which mm -hmm. I guess makes it a bit easier to scale up. Yeah. yeah. Um, and ultimately, you, you want to have these this very thin, but also very flexible technology, because then you can kind of have material sheets of of solar panels that can be like unfurled on a rooftop and then packed away again like it, it just gives so much new potential to this field so yeah it seems like it's quite a big finding yeah i mean we won't see these just like in practice we won't see these thin um, solar cells on their own they will always be wrapped in like protective layers but when they're so thin you can integrate them like more easily in other structures um including the protection because i guess they will also easily break when they're so very thin yeah and just just as a quick reminder plants and algae were the original solar cells so <laughs> well done material science but i can also balance an algae on a soap bubble possibly <laughs> i don't know probably probably can i probably. <laughs> why not i found a story on science news um that's uh that talks about the impact of terroir have you heard about terroir um not Maybe. at all it's it's a concept that's been sort of became fashionable in the last couple of years uh, maybe 10 or so um, especially in winemaking um, it's the idea that the terroir which is french which just for area or surrounding um, defines or has a large impact on the flavor of the wine so if you grow the same um, grape variety on two different hills um 
they will taste different because of the different compositions of the soil. And um, it led to the fact that more and more wines were actually labeled with descriptions of the ter terroir that they're growing on. Um, instead of just saying this is a Cabernet grape or this is a Bordeaux grape, they're saying this is a Bordeaux grape grown on like a, a limey um, hill facing this and that direction with like average rainfalls or something like this, because all of these things according to wine connoisseurs, have an impact on the flavor. And now... No, I, I absolutely buy that. I think not yeah, just the soil... I mean, this is why we I'm have just, good years and bad years of wine. I'm saying that because I often can't taste these things, but that doesn't mean that I don't think that they exist. I just... My my wine tasting is not developed enough to be able to distinguish this. Um, I mean, how else are we supposed to have such diversity of wine flavors that range from, what, Chinese medicine to blueberry? To, was that wine or was that coffee that we did? I think we did that on coffee. Um, but coffee is also something where terroir has been... Um, has become important um the, mm -hmm. the same coffee varieties can also produce very different flavors depending on where they're grown and you can make the case that maybe some of them are also accessions um so we talked about accessions in the context of arabidopsis so that means they are belonging to the same species but they are genetically different from one another because they adapted to local environments um, mm -hmm. and they didn't evolve so far away from each other that they became new species, but they are still, they have differences that we can link to genetic differences in there. Um, and it's not just the different nutrient composition there. Um, and that's why they also try to figure out, uh, so a couple of... Uh, couple of groups of researchers so this uh, this article sum summarizes the, the work of many different research groups they wanted to figure out so what is it is it just the composition of your nutrients is it um is it a genetic factor are these things just different accessions is it a combination of the two and what about microbes do they have a role because they mm -hmm. grow next to on on the plants in the plants and um, create a lot of metabolites and the plants might react to these and then change their yeah, own absolutely. metabolite profile and how does that is that reflected in in the flavor and they in in this article it's i it's a little bit of a long read but i recommend it it talks about wine coffee cocoa for chocolate and hops all of which are very fragrant um, um, products and um, looked in these different things for, for different aspects. And for hops, for example, they could find that um, there is a, a genetic component um, that defines a lot of the flavor profiles of hops, but not mm -hmm. everything. So these, there's, there's one compound um, that's only present when in, in certain contexts, and this context, uh, according to the researchers, is defined by aphids um, that are attacking the plants in one location and not attacking it in another location. And so this metabolite is made by the hops plant to fend off these insects. And it's a, it's a metabolite that we can taste and that defines the flavor of the hops. Does so it make it better or worse? It changes the profile. I mean, hops is one of these um, plants where you have a very wide range of flavors and often individually they don't taste very great but if you mix them in the beer making um you sometimes want to have like a very bitter flavor in there um mm. but just like a little bit and then you sort of compose the flavor of your beer so it, you can't really say if it's a good or a bad flavor it's just one part of the flavor profile that's defined by the aphids and now they want to do follow-up experiments where they actually put plants in a greenhouse under co very controlled identical conditions and just have aphids 
um, present in one of the growth chambers and not in the other one, which I guess makes them not very um, liked by their fellow plant researchers because <laughs> aphids are usually not what you want to have in a greenhouse. Um, uh, yeah. um, but apart from that, it's like they want to follow up with like in uh, sort of in vitro experiments or in, in greenhouse experiments to do that because so far they have looked at um, hops grown in the production sites across the world in, in very different places. Um, and it's also in other things, it's microbes that, that leave a mark. So um, the question, is it terroir or genetics or microbes? The answer is all of them to different extents to different parts of the metabolite profile. Wait, sorry. Ter the terroir is just the soil? Yeah. Like, this okay. This, okay. Depending, there's different uh, definitions, but in, in the sort of most narrow definition, it's just the soil and the nutrients you have in the soil mm -hmm. and the way the, the soil re retains water and so on. So pretty much yeah. like if you compare that to your houseplants, if you put them on like a very peaty substrate or if you put it on a very sandy substrate um, and then taste your plant. I mean, if you could do <laughs> that with basil plants. and figure out if the basil tastes different <laughs> depending on if you grow it on sand or if you grow it on like a very peaty. Don't um, eat begonias, things. guys. They're poisonous. Yeah. Yeah. Don't do it to all your houseplants. Um, but that would be the terroir, um, sort of the growth mm -hmm. conditions. Um, yeah. So it's it's very interesting. And it's one of these sort of, it's, it's written as a popular science article, but it features scientific um, illustrations. And I quite like that because you get used to the, to, to, understanding these um, scientific illustrations by reading the story. So, yeah, that's on Science News. Um, <laughs> I have one final fact, but it's, it's very unscientific. So I don't know if you want to discuss this or not. Um, do you know about menotoxins? Menotoxins? Mm. No, I can't even make up what it could be. I mean, do you, do you want to try and guess? I only know meno from the word menopause, which is... There like we go. Uh <laughs> Okay. So it's it's this very old idea, and and I'm sure a lot of you have already come across this before. But it's the idea that women produce toxins while they're <laughs> menstruating, and that these menstruation toxins can have some very unfortunate events. So they can wilt flowers and kill trees. Um, they can rot meat. Um, they can also apparently prevent a perm from staying, like from taking. Um, menstruating women also should not bake bread, sow seeds, reap fruit, um, other things like this. So I was, I've heard about this before. I think it's a kind of hilarious concept. I mean, it's obviously hugely problematic. It's also an old concept, right? Or are there people still old. proposing that concept today? No. Um, I hope there's not people still proposing this today. It's, it's a very old concept that, that we should um, get forward. So... It came about in the 1920s, which it's old. I would say it's not old enough. Um, yeah. And it also came, it was developed by somebody called Bella Schick, who is actually like a legitimate scientist who's famous for the Schick test, which is used to detect um, diphtheria toxin immunity. So legitimate scientist who at one stage handed some roses to his maid as the story goes and she was all like no 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 I shouldn't hold them right now it's not it's not a good idea and <laughs> she held them <laughs> presumably for like several hours out of water because the flowers then wilted and died the next morning and then he made inquiries and discovered the maid was menstruating and thus made some wild correlative d 
decisions in his scientific mind and came up with the idea that her menstruation um, killed flowers. And then there was a, <laughs> a range of experiments that were carried out on menstruating and non-menstruating servant girls, which is just ridiculous, on flowers making dough. And the conclusion was that they were emitting something from their skin. What <laughs> the discussion I've heard about this, apart from the fact that this is clearly stupid, um, is that this is kind of a nice, <laughs> a nice story to show the importance of having a positive and negative control. Because some people have suggested that basically what he did was he handed flowers to women and was like, you've got your period, here, hold this flower and let's see if the, the flower dies. And the control flower was a flower in water. So it was like, oh, look, the flower with the woman dies more rapidly. Yeah, um, yeah controls yeah. are important. <laughs> controls make or break an experiment. I I don't know. I, I, I would really like to believe that it existed in the context that the, the maid simply didn't want to be dealing with like she just didn't want to arrange his flowers that day and therefore she made up some excuse as a reason to not have to but i'm like i would like to believe that there was some sort of female motivation and not just blatant misogyny involved in this belief but there you have it menotoxins it's not a real thing um but apparently <laughs> as as late as maybe the 70s it was being discussed in the lancet which is, again, a mm. respectable medical journal. Let's just hope that this doesn't make a comeback like so many bad ideas from the 20s or bad things from the 20s that yeah. are making a comeback now, like worldwide plagues have, and <laughs> racists. I have to say the reason that it came back into my mind is that I was listening to the most charming podcast, um, No Such Thing as a Fish, and I just want to put a little punt in to say if you feel like doing something with your time that will make you happy almost guaranteed go and listen to no such thing as a fish it's just i'm very rarely angry at the end of listening to that <laughs> yeah that's true i also really enjoy that i have two more facts and i want to make it quick now because i talk for uh, a long time today um the first one um is called the first story is called live fast die young live fast die young is the motto of trees um what? Unfortunately, and not all trees, but um, there has been a story that I read on the conversation from a researcher who just published a paper in Nature Communications about um, surveying tree growth and uh, tree age um, now in during the climate crisis, during the ongoing climate crisis. Because the idea is um, that's often proposed and also reflected in many climate models that trees um, will be able to grow faster because of the higher carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere and therefore trees or forests will become more of a sink for carbon dioxide because they grow faster and, and put it into their um, uh, organic compounds and, and the, the fix the carbon and therefore they are sinks and they will increase to be sinks like the, the capacity to bind carbon will increase over time because they just will grow faster from um, the elevated carbon dioxide levels and this yeah, is important being that they lock that down into wood yeah this is in many climate models that try to figure out or that that uh, calculate or uh, estimate how the world will look like in 10 to 50 years um, but the question is is this actually true for trees and when what they found in their research is that if the trees um, grow faster they die younger um, they're sort of 
um, a maximum size or maximum capacity that the tree can reach and then it will die and it can reach that slowly or it can reach that quickly but once it reaches that that moment or that sort of size um, it's unclear what it, what it is exactly what is exactly the trigger um, but uh, from from trees from the same species like different accessions that grow faster or they grow slower um, the faster growers they die earlier than the slow growers and we also see that just in general there's like some very fast growing woods um, that have that tend to have a shorter life than very slow growing trees so the trees that are very very old that we can still find today they have an, an extraordinarily slow growth rate um and what that means for the climate models is that it doesn't change the capacity as a carbon sink um, of forests. Uh, it means that in the short term, they pack a little bit more carbon, but then in a couple of decades, they will die off again and release the carbon again from decomposition. And that has implications on climate models and means that um, some of the sort of variables in there need to be adjusted to account for the fact that trees won't be a, a bigger carbon sink in the future they will stay approximately the same or um or maybe even decline when they die off quickly and can't be replaced quick enough um so yeah that's new research on on tree metabolism and my other story that i uh, want to mention it's something from a blog that i um, quite like it's called awkward botany we mentioned that before um, mm. and they just published a very interesting stories about flowers growing out of flowers and i encourage you all to go to awkwardbotany.com and have a look at the article called flowers growing out of flowers in parenthesis things are getting weird out there um, uh, where they are talking about um, uh, an, a cone flower an echinacea purpurea um, and you see that out of the sort of green flower, there's a stem growing and then there's flowers at the end of the stem again. So mm. you have flowers on top of flowers, which is a fairly peculiar sight. It's kind of, it's a, it's a mini flower on top of it. It's, it's sort of scaled down, Wonderland-esque. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, it's not a very good sign when that happens. Um, it's linked to a bacterial infection that changes the hormonal metabolism of the flower. And when the flower develops, um, just as a sort of quick reminder for myself or who never had basic um, botany, um, flowers are just changed stems. So a stem grows and then there's a hormonal signal that says, stop being a stem, start developing into a flower now, please. And then that's what happens, that the cells, the, the newly growing cells, they um, differentiate into flowers instead of into more stem cells. As, uh, stem, not stem cells, like the stem cells that can become anything, cells, the cells that are found in this <laughs> plant stem. Pure choice, <laughs> poor choice of words there from, from me. Um, so stop being like a stalk, stop being stalk cells become flower cells. But when these bacteria hit infect the cells then at this stage they can reprogram the cells again and, and uh, with their metabolites and say maybe become a stem again become a stalk again and then that's what they do then some cells in the flower bud they develop again into a stem and that's then growing out of the flower and then sort of the original programming can kick in again and trigger again the flowering and then you get a flower on top of a flower um 
And is the bacteria sort of preventing the flower from reaching the... Because for, for most of these plants, I'm assuming that once they flower, they then wilt and die. Is the bacteria kind of stopping the, the plant from completing its reproductive cycle and therefore keeping it alive to, to inhabit? Is that is that part of the... I mean... I don't know if it's... if the ultimate point is to keep it alive it could very well be but it definitely stops the flower development um mm -hmm. the flowers don't set seeds then and don't become mature flowers at least the original flower but i don't know if the secondary flowers if they can fully mature what does the bacteria get out of it that's what i want to know ah that's a good question um because I could like I mean this is an argument with um, viruses or bacteria that are infectious that they want to be virulent but they don't want to be lethal because if their host dies they die too so I can imagine that if you're in a flowering plant w that will automatically start dying once it's finished reproduction you might want to stop it from finishing reproduction so you can hang around a little bit longer inhabiting its mm -hmm. its being. As a bacteria, I mean, obviously, this is not something that the bacteria is sitting down, thinking out, and like diarizing and making plans in its bullet <laughs> journal. But it's ultimately what gets selected in nature in order for this bacteria to survive. It has to keep its host alive. But I, I'm completely making this up, so this this could no, no, be yeah, false. I'm, but this I'm, sounds like a, a possible reason to me. <laughs> but it's it's good that you're. Um, I'm thinking like a bacteria. You're making these up. That gives me time to uh, look up the. Um, Wikipedia page on the phenomenon. The phenomenon is, by the way, called philodi or philodi, philodi, I think. Um, it can also be caused by other factors, not just bacteria, but bacteria um, are in this specific case presented on awkward botany. Um, the case, but it can also be viruses, fungi. Um, so there's a couple of ways, um, biotic factors, so living things or viruses are not really living, but sort of. Um, um, life adjacent things can um, trigger this change in the development but there's also things like I I abiotic stresses um, like environmental factors like hot weather or water stress can also change the balance of plant hormones and then trigger this fertility happening so um, there is at least here in the summary it's not really clear what the biotic factors get out of it um, but as but maybe then if it's by also other stresses, it's just that the plant gets too stressed and is like, hey, let's not make babies now because you're going to end up with yeah. problematic babies because I don't have the resources to really like yeah. correctly go through reproduction. Maybe there's something like that instead of, you know. It could be a secondary effect. Like the, the things that are infecting the plant, they want to achieve something else, probably just get at the sugars that the plants have. Um but one of their products that they're making is throwing the balance of hormones off in the plant, and that triggers then the phylogy. Uh, um, mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I, that's something that I had no idea about before, and um, yeah, quite, quite enjoyed reading about it on awkwardbotany.com, so check that out. Um, with that, I have a cat fact that's not really uh, a cat fact um but um uh, anyway we we have to end on an animal fact and i had to draw a bird this week for a story that we published on plants and pets.com a penguin and i realized that i really enjoy drawing birds much more than flowers so maybe we have to shift the whole thing to a bird project and to do um, the first there's, step there's there. already a, there's a really great account on instagram called bird strips which was um involving drawing a bird every single day and this you should definitely go and check that out yeah and as our first step towards a bird-based project um 
birds and pipettes. Um, oh, no. Have, have you heard the story about the hummingbird popsicle? No. There's a specific um, hummingbird in the Andes, uh, I think, that lives very at a very high altitude. I think in 5,000 meters um, uh, elevation or altitude or whatever the word is. Um, it's called the Black Metal Tail, which is also <laughs> a pretty cool name. The, um, uh, and this bird has can survive the lowest temperature of any um, warm-blooded animal that's not... Um, hibernating uh, and it has to do that because you know like hummingbirds are these um, these birds that have these incredibly fast metabolisms they constantly have to be on the move and drink <laughs> nectar to have this high sugar mm -hmm. input so they can stay alive because they're basically on a sugar high right they're they're constantly. hopped up yeah mm. they're just constantly extremely high on sugar um and if they don't feed within uh, for, for a couple of hours they can actually die like they are really um that energy intensive but when you live as a bird when you live very high up that means that the nights get really cold and staying warm takes a lot of energy and you can't Sorry, really you just said when you live as a bird when you live really high up which made it sound like birds live in the sky which i don't think that's what we want to no no i mean at a, when you're when your habitat is at a high altitude um sort of where you rest <laughs> and not only mm. where you fly um <laughs> Then uh, if you live in the mountains where, it's, where it gets really cold, then you need to spend a lot of energy on staying warm at night. Or mm. you do it um, the way the black metal tail does it. Um, and you just stop being warm. Um, you, they actually chill down to 3.26 uh, degrees Celsius, um, which is the coldest temperature ever recorded in a bird or non-hibernating mammal. Um, and researchers say they really they get as cold as a stone um, at that mm -hmm. point. And this is how they spend the night, and they spend very little energy during that pro during that time. And then in the morning, when it, the ambient temperature goes up, they start to reheat themselves by shivering, by tensing their muscles for a little bit. Um, and they say that you can really observe that, and that they for, um, with about uh, a speed of a, a degree centigrade per minute, they heat up. And once they reached working temperature, they open their eyes and they fly off and they start drinking um, nectar again. And Do you think sometimes they just input. get kind of stuck and they forget to like restart and they they're just kind of frozen there for a few days until you get like a warmer day and then they kind of they don't go into that in the in the article they don't don't say how long they could uh, survive like this um, but I can imagine that if it's a particularly long cold night and morning they might start up later um, so that they can just um, that they can heat up again. Um, I do. This is very, very cool. But I do think saying... Cool, I see what you did there. Uh, no, I didn't do that. <laughs> um, this is very, very awesome, so awesome. But <laughs> I do think it's a bit of fake advertising saying they get colder except for hibernating animals because what they're doing basically is hibernating. It's just in short time periods, right? I mean, they're going into torpor, which is basically what hibernation is i mean animal biologists write in and tell me if there's a, really a difference between torpor and hibernation apart from the time frame but given how fast hummingbirds live and die like yeah. the trees i i mean <laughs> yeah it's, it's pretty similar as a physiological phenomenon i guess are there Phen hibernating birds i have no idea I no idea yeah um so maybe we're not doing a bird project then <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, there are also a lot of um, Australian marsupials which go into torpor in the heat of the day. So they basically just like stop metabolizing because otherwise they would overheat. I think I think that's correct. I might be oversimplifying to the point of wrongness, but it's it's the same sort of thing, but they don't want to get too hot. So they just kind of shut down at midday and then they start up again at the night and then they go about their business. So Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, but still, like the, the one one Very other cool fact is that it, usually their heart beats a thousand, uh, one thousand two hundred times uh, a minute. It's just like if you would listen to it, it would just be like a, a humming sound. Maybe that's why I call humming, but it's just like a bzzz, is the heartbeat, and then they drop it down to forty beats per minute, um, which is like an insane ratio from one thousand two hundred times a minute to forty times a minute. I mean, so that's what I'm saying. If you normalize the amount of time they're torporing by their heartbeats, it's probably the equivalent of a bear hibernating for six months. Like <laughs> on a per heartbeat basis, it's probably probably a very close thing. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, hummingbirds. I'm sure you're cool. I've never seen a hummingbird in real life. And I think if I did, I would be absolutely delighted because yeah. they sound amazing. But yeah, yeah. Same for me. Follow us, please, on all of our social media. If you want to talk to me and tell me how I'm wrong, uh, you can go to Twitter. It's at Plants Pipettes, um, where I'm usually found. Yeah, and if you're Greenpeace and you want to come after us, please go to Yoram on Twitter. <laughs> Otherwise, you can come and say lovely things to me on Instagram or Facebook. It's at Plants and Pipettes. We also have a blog. Um, we mentioned it already during the episode at over at plantsandpipettes.com. You can read two articles every week about the world of plant science. Um, and uh, this week, we, I mean, plus the little bonus story about, uh, from me, we had two very cool stories from you. Um, one about penguins and how the color of penguin poo is shaped by um, uh, algae. And the other story was about a plant that fakes being sick basically um, by using variegation patterns and scientists who worked out this sick faking mechanisms by using whiteout or tipex. Um, if you want to support us, um, you can rate us on iTunes or wherever you can rate podcasts or tell your friends about us. That's um, really, really cool and the best way to help us grow our audience and if you want to learn more you can go to plantsandpipettes.com slash support yeah and please follow us comment do all of yeah. those things um, our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross that's it for this week thank you Bye. for listening goodbye <laughs>